Would you be surprised if I told you that the first governor of the state of Florida was not born in Florida? Of course he wasn't. His name was William Dunn Mosley, born in North Carolina in 1795, just a few years after the end of the American Revolution. Mosley's family came from England and had lived in America for a few generations by the time he was born. As far as historians can tell, he had an ancestor colonist as early as 1649. He was a student of the University of North Carolina, and at the time he lived in what constitutes for a dorm back in the early 1800s. His roommate, well, he was a man named James K. Polk. He would go on to be the president of the United States. Can you imagine that you became the first governor of a burgeoning state, but that doesn't really matter because your roommate became the literal president? It's got to be kind of a bummer. My very talented college roommates already blow me away. I would hate if one of them became the president. It would just overshadow anything I could do. But, you know, I bet one of them could pull it off. Anyway, Mosley became a lawyer, a teacher, and a farmer. He served on the North Carolina Senate for nearly a decade, and when he failed to become governor of North Carolina, he packed up his bags and moved his family down to Florida. They purchased a plantation. Slavery was a part of Florida's economy and the nation's economy, and he lived near a lake called Lake Miccosukee in northern Florida. In 1840, he became representative for the territory of Florida. We were still a territory at that point, and then he joined the Territorial Senate in 1844. That very next year, Florida joined the Union in 1845, and Mosley would become the very first governor of the state. There had been six territorial governors up to that point. Well, five. One guy did it twice. We'll talk about him in a moment. William Duval, who is the namesake of Duval County, was the longest-running governor at that time. He had been the territorial governor for 12 years. Future president Andrew Jackson also served as the leader of the territory, but not actually really a governor. It's a long story that we will actually cover in depth next summer. That's a bit of a, a teaser. But each of these territorial governors were appointed by then-president of the United States. Six presidents appointed five territorial governors over the course of 22 years. But now, the people who were permitted to vote, and who was permitted to vote is important, but those who could vote were now choosing their first governor. We were a state now, and in many ways we had to make decisions for ourselves. Our first election was held at the end of spring, not a normal time of year for elections, but we had just become a state in March. It was May 26th, 1845, and that was when we decided to pick our representatives. The state of Florida chose its own governor, U.S. congressman, and state legislature. The future was now, and Florida had to decide who they were going to be. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, we're back to history, baby. We're talking about Florida's first election, how we became a state in the first place, the people we voted for, and how we even voted back then. Tomorrow, as you're hearing this on the day it's release, is Election Day. Tomorrow, November 8th, is Election Day. By tomorrow night, if everything goes as planned, we will know who our governor is, and we will know who one of our two senators is. Also, dozens upon dozens of other positions will be filled or changed or updated. Three amendments will be voted on. I did an episode on that. Go check it out. Link in the description. If you haven't voted yet, get on it. Tomorrow's the day. I was planning on doing it actually on Election Day right here in Seminole County, but I did it this past Saturday on a rainy day. It was a wonderful chance to get my voting done, do my civic duty, and wear my Federal Art Project t-shirt. I like it. It's like the most patriotic thing I own. It's like an eagle, but half of his body looks like a painter's palette. It's cool. Anyway, I was there. I hope you'll be there too and do your civic duty. We're counting on you, and you know, you get a sticker. 
This is a very, very important election, one that can have a huge impact on the path forward for the state of Florida. It's very likely that we will turn toward this election for decades to come and point out the significance of those we chose to ascend to certain offices to represent us at the state and federal level. Florida is at a major point of change right now, with our current leaders throwing us headlong into several national debates that have turned many a rueful eye on the way we run. From the way that we responded to the pandemic, to the way we have been handling the increasing pressures of the climate emergency, including hurricanes, from newly instated anti-gay legislation concerning our schools in the state, to the rising concerns about protections for reproductive freedom. Our state is at the forefront of all these conversations and their impact on the national debate. We are, as I've mentioned many, many times on this show, what's called a swing state in national elections for president. We can swing Democrat or Republican and have done so in various ways over the last several decades. But this is not a presidential election year. We're not choosing a president. We are making decisions over our own future. And by doing so, we will be swinging the national debate in one direction or another. Who will be our governor and who will be one of our two senators? Ron DeSantis, who has served as governor for most of the run of this show since 2018, is up for re-election. Charlie Crist, who was the governor of Florida during my childhood as a Republican, is now running as a Democrat, having spent the last several years at the federal level as a Democrat in Congress. This election season between the two of them has been intense already, and I cannot imagine election day itself is going to be any easier. As for the senatorial race, Marco Rubio is running to retain his seat as senator for another six years. He has already been elected to the position twice. He has served as a senator for Florida since 2010. If he retains the job, he will remain a senator until 2028. That's 18 years as a Republican senator of Florida, if he wins. Our other current senator, former Governor Rick Scott, is also a Republican. Marco Rubio is running against Val Demings, who was actually from Orlando, my hometown. She has served Western Orlando as a representative in Congress since 2016. Now, she's seeking to move up to be a senator. There are obviously other elections around the state, representatives, state legislatures, county commissions. My town even has a mayoral race. A lot is riding on Tuesday, but the senator and governor elections are going to be a huge story for us for a long time. And frankly, the whole nation is waiting on the result. Ever since I became a voter eight years ago, I've spent all the time every two years hesitantly looking forward to Election Day. It always fascinated me as a child because I had no real stake in it. I didn't know what was going on. I'd go with my mom to the polls and stand by her side while she voted. It felt like a test, but I remember being astounded by the simplicity of it, just the just the technology of it. You get a piece of paper, you scribble in the dot, you move on. It was like taking the FCAT. Y'all remember the FCAT? It felt like everyone was a little tense in there, giving each other sideways glances. What are you doing? Who knows? I don't know. It, it always kind of baffled me as a kid. But now when I get to go, I get to see the friendly faces of my community and hope that we're doing our job correctly. Hoping that all of us are feeling safe and welcome in this place. But Voting has changed a lot over the last two centuries. Me just showing up to the local sports complex in a t-shirt and hat to vote, that's just not the way it was two centuries ago. But now voting looks a lot different even though we are still struggling with a lot of the issues that we were dealing with over the last two centuries. But let's take it back to the beginning. Who did we vote for in 1845 and how did we vote? Well, who voted 
obviously was important and has changed many times over the last several centuries. Civil rights have changed so much of who the electorate is, but back in the day, back in 1845, the voters were white men who owned land. That's how it worked back in 1845. So take that in mind when we talk about who the voters were nearly 200 years ago. Florida Memory has an amazing article about this. It's a collection of the returns from the 1845 election, and they look so cool. 1845, as I mentioned, was a landmark year, much like this one, and being able to see the returns gives us a great point of reference on how much has changed since that pivotal year. The returns, by the way, means that these are not the actual ballots, but they're the final counts for certain precincts of how many votes there were for a certain candidate. Thanks to Florida Memory, we can actually physically see the documents that were involved in the 1845 election. There's a link in the description. Go check them out. They're so cool. The state government provided these forms for each individual county to fill out. There were 25 counties in total, but also there weren't that many people that were allowed to vote. The total voters in the state of Florida added up to 6,000. That's it. In 2020, 11 million people voted. Think about the difference. 6,011 million. And the way those voters were turned in, it's, it's kind of strange. Here's what Florida Memory has to say. Quote, on each return, the county clerk and the election inspectors for the precinct identified the voters' names, the offices for which they voted, whether their qualifications as a voter were challenged, and what the result of that challenge, if any, was. End quote. Very intense, and very rigorous. Florida Memory also points out that while these documents are an interesting way to track how voting has changed, they are also a fascinating way to track genealogy and confirm who was where two centuries ago. Getting to raid these names, it's, it's awesome. One document shows clearly a few names. Josiah Johnson, Willis Smith, John Harvey. Names of no significance, I'm sure, but... They were involved in the very first state election. Isn't that significant enough? That, that's enough for me. But these folks, they elected William Dunn Mosley, and he took the title as first governor of the state of Florida. But how we even got to a point to be able to vote for our state governor explains why Mosley was our first governor in the first place. For that, though, we have to talk about one of my favorite little stories of the 19th century America. One I haven't gotten to talk a lot about on this show, but I'm hoping to do so in the next couple of years. It's a fascinating, oft-forgotten part of American history called the Whig Party. The title Whig, spelled W-H-I-G, comes from England. The original Whigs were a political party that started in Britain in 1678 as an anti-monarchist branch of their government. The word Whig itself apparently goes back to a term in northern England called Whigamore, which has agricultural origins, and it's a bit too convoluted and English for me to parse the entire origins out. Something about cows in Scotland. I'm not joking. I, I don't entirely. I've read it so many times. I still don't quite know what it all means. Literally, I, I, I know all the words. Anyway, the Whig title was taken by Americans for reasons unrelated to the cow thing. The British Whigs were anti-monarchy, and the American Whig Party was formed to contest then-president of the United States, the once sort of governor of Florida, Andrew Jackson. See, I told you it all comes back to Florida. The Whigs referred to Andrew Jackson as King Andrew. 
They were not fans. So for them to take on the title of Whig means that they were anti-monarchy. There's no monarchy, but Andrew Jackson, for them, was as close to an overpowering king as we had. The Democratic Party, the Democrats who fell in line behind Andrew Jackson, they loved him. But the Whigs wanted to be a counterpoint to his power. And over the 20-odd years of the Whigs' existence, they managed to not only rise to power, but they elected four presidents as Whigs. One such president was John Tyler, but we'll come back to him in a moment. The Whigs, for me, are the forgotten political party of American history, which is a shame because it's, it's one of the most important things that we've ever done. The Democrats were running the show in the early 1800s, and by coming into existence, by their mere presence, the Whigs made the government a true two-party system. But I find it fascinating that the whole party only came into existence to combat one man, Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was a lawyer and a soldier, a man who came to prominence during war. His role as a major general in the War of 1812 brought him to legendary status. He was specifically noted for fighting in a campaign against the Creek Indians. The Creek Indians were allied with the British, who were the other combatants in the war, and Andrew Jackson's job was to take out an ally of the British. That is what he did. He then invaded Florida in 1817, taking Spanish outposts and leading to further conflict between the two powers. Again, next summer, we're diving deep on Andrew Jackson, but what you need to know is that he made an impact. He was an important figure in the early 1800s. By 1829, he was president, and he was making enemies. Not only were his politics staunchly based on his political ideologies, but also he was a brash, intense personality. Many politicians found him indecent. He ruled his administration with an iron fist. Quote, he did not defer to Congress or hesitate to use his presidential veto power. End quote. Like I said, they called him King Andrew. Nothing came out of his government if he didn't like it. When the Whigs formed, they had a few issues with Andrew Jackson that were very, very specific. And those who rallied around the Whigs were coming to the party for various reasons. The people who were joining up with the cause included, quote, evangelical Protestants interested in moral reform, abolitionists, and those against the harsh treatment of Native Americans under Andrew Jackson in his rush to expand the country's borders. In 1830, Jackson had signed the Indian Removal Act, but then ignored its tenets when he forced thousands of Choctaw to journey to Indian territory on foot in what became known as the Trail of Tears, end quote. This wasn't just political, it was moral, too. The idea of slavery being abolished was entering serious conversations at the national level, and though it wasn't reaching genuine consideration, the Democrats were anti-abolition, and the Whigs had abolitionists on their side. The two parties would be in conflict for years, but the tension between the parties, especially over their values, would play directly into the first election in the state of Florida. Around the same time as the Whigs came into existence in the 1820s, Florida became a territory of the United States, and 20 years would go by before we actually became a state. Why? Well, according to Florida memory, the threat of abolishing slavery had become part of the debate. Quote, as tensions between northern and southern states over the expansion of slavery became more prevalent, some pro-slavery Floridians suggested that Florida ought to wait to increase its population so it could enter the Union as two states. End quote. Those in favor of retaining slavery wanted Florida to be part of the Union as two states because then Florida would be in as two separate pro-slavery states with two separate votes in Congress at a time when those in favor of retaining slavery needed as much help as they could get. 
That wasn't the only reason, of course, but it was one of the biggest on their minds. Other reasons include the fact that the state was looking for the kinds of protections and opportunities that would be given to them if they actually were a part of the country. Quote, as a state, Florida would enjoy the benefits of better representation in Congress, grants of land from federal government, and national prominence as a place to settle and do business. End quote. So what did the government do to decide whether or not to let us in? Well, they put it to a vote. These are the kind of monumental things we were voting on two centuries ago, and the vote succeeded. Florida wanted to join the party, but we struggled to settle a proper state government. The federal government didn't believe that the state could raise enough taxes to even form a state government, and we struggled to even get our constitution ratified. We were a mess. It took years, seven years, and politics finally pushed us over the line. See. Iowa was also trying to become a state at the exact same time, and if Iowa became a state, then the North would gain another ally. The South needed their own new face to join the fight, so Florida was admitted to balance against Iowa. It was that simple, and frankly, it was that stupid. With the signing by President John Tyler, both territories became states. The North got a new state, and so did the South. John Tyler, remember I mentioned him earlier? He was a Whig. He was the president that welcomed Florida into the Union. But here's the thing. It's an ugly truth about Florida when we became a state, which is that 16 years after we became a state in the first place, we would stop being a state. Florida would secede from the United States. Florida didn't cast a single vote for Abraham Lincoln. And when the Confederate states began seceding in 1861, so too did Florida. That wasn't out of the blue. It was part of a running problem, a genuine concern for the state of Florida that dates all the way back to 1845 and before from the entire process of Florida becoming a state. It all comes back to that first election. Because remember, Florida was considering joining the Union as two states to support anti-abolitionist thought, to, to allow the South to have an extra vote, not just one, but two extra votes in the federal government to help them keep their current practices at that time in place. Florida was taken in as a state because the southern states needed a friendly state joining the Union. That's the whole reason that the entire thing got pushed through. And remember, the Democrats were anti-abolition, and the Whigs had partied with abolitionists. So it was that simple. The Democrats wanted to keep slavery. The Whigs had some people in their party that didn't. The impact that that has on Florida's first election really becomes clear when you consider who our first governor, William Dunn Mosley, was running against. His opponent was named Richard Keith Call. Call was exactly the man who maybe should have taken the title as governor, but he picked the wrong ally at the wrong time, and the voters of Florida held him to it. Richard Keith Call was a general, and in 1835, he became the territorial governor of Florida. He was the son of a Revolutionary War veteran, and he himself joined up with the Army during the War of 1812. He served under Andrew Jackson. He spent most of his military career under Jackson's command, and he was even an aide at the famous Battle of New Orleans. When Jackson became the leader of the territory of Florida, Call was with him, and he remained in the state even when Jackson eventually left. Florida became his home, 
He was a lawyer in Pensacola, and he moved to Tallahassee later. He became territorial governor in 1835 and spent a large amount of his term fighting in the Second Seminole War. He literally fought battles in the state of Florida, even while serving as governor. He made enemies at the federal level, though, with President Martin Van Buren, apparently because Martin Van Buren thought the governor was asking too much of the federal government, asking for too much help. Call was removed from his office in 1839, and during that period where he wasn't serving as governor, he helped a man become president, a man named William Henry Harrison. But here's the thing about William Henry Harrison. He was a Whig, not a Democrat. When Harrison won the presidency, he appointed Richard Call back to his title as territorial governor. He'd remained there until a new president, John Tyler, replaced him with another territorial governor, and when the time came to elect an actual first state governor, Richard Keith Call thought he would be the right guy for the job. Other than William Pope Duval, who was the territorial governor at the very beginning of Florida being a territory, he served for 12 years, as I mentioned, but no one had been territorial governor for more time than Richard Keith Call. It totaled to about six years. No one was even that close. He served under Florida's beloved hero, Andrew Jackson. Everybody loved the man at that time. He was a wartime hero. And Call had lived in Florida for years and years. He fought in the Second Seminole War. But... In 1840, he chose the Whigs over the Democrats in helping William Henry Harrison, and he wore that party to the election in 1845. He ran as a Whig. Floridians didn't want a Whig, despite the reputation and experience that he had. It wasn't enough. Of the 6,000 voters, roughly 55% of them voted for Mosley, the Democrat. Richard Keith Call never held public office again, and he spent the rest of his life working on plantations that he owned. Even though he was a Whig who apparently supported abolitionism, Richard Keith Call was a slave owner. For the voters of Florida in 1845, the party that their gubernatorial candidate aligned with mattered more perhaps than the experience that the candidate brought to the table. And with that, William Dunn Mosley became our first state governor, a Democrat from North Carolina who served for four years. The governor that came after him in 1849, well, you might be surprised to learn this, but he was a Whig. But that's a story for another day. We'll talk about how that happened some other time. I promise. Look, voting can be ugly. History tells the truth on the trends that surround every election day, every time. The election of 1845 was 187 years ago, but it somehow echoes so much of what we do every election cycle, every year. Partisan voting, cult of personality, just the same irritating conversations that we have every year. The 6,000 people who counted their votes all those years ago didn't know how much of a look we'd be taking back at the election all those years later. They had no idea that even the Civil War was on the horizon. But now, that election feels like table setting for the secession that would follow. Every election, every year, feels like a prelude to something new, for better or for worse. History tells us that. We never know what comes next, but maybe someday, 187 years from now, in 2209, that kind of makes me want to throw up. I wish I hadn't said that. 187 years from now, in the year 2209, <laughs> maybe somebody will look back at this election and see what followed soon after. I hope, for their sake and for ours, that it's a good story. I hope that the follow-up to this election is a happier story than the one that followed the election of 1845.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you were here. I'm going to cut right to the chase. Tomorrow is Election Day. If you have not voted yet, tomorrow is your day, November 8th. I'm including a link to vote.org, which will have a sample ballot of everything that's on your ballot when you show up, of what you can vote for. All of that is so important. Each, every individual thing. If you don't know what's going on, if you haven't decided on a candidate that you're voting for, local journalism, local newspapers are doing really amazing stuff. Their editorial boards have endorsements. If you want to check those out, it is so important to do your civic duty. Today is the best day to be prepared for tomorrow, November 8th. So head to vote.org, go to your local paper, and be prepared for election day tomorrow. Your community is counting on you. And also, if you want to know what the amendments are, because there are three of them, and you want to understand what's going on, go check out my episode about the amendments. There's a link to that in the episode description. It breaks down all three, what they're about, what would happen if you vote yes, what would happen if you vote no, who's supporting them, who's against them. It's really interesting. Go check that out as well. If you enjoyed this show, if you enjoy the amendment episode, if you enjoy any of our episodes, please give the show five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a review. It would mean a lot to me to know what you like about this show. You can also find the show on Instagram and Facebook at WFMPod, and you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I very much look forward to hearing from you. I love to hear what you love about this show. I got a wonderful email about my Halloween episode from last week that made me so happy. I love that we get to share these strange little traditions of holidays and events and 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 recurring traditions. It, it means a lot to me. So reach out to me there. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much. All the music in this episode was originally composed. All right. That is it this week. I am so glad that we got to spend this last chat before Election Day together. I'm very excited to see how tomorrow turns out. This show started during a gubernatorial season. This show started with tons of episodes about the gubernatorial candidates. and We're just not that show anymore. It was a political show in 2018, and I'm, I'm glad that it's not anymore because <laughs> politics can really wear you down. And history is, a, in my opinion, much better way to access the truth of our current politics than it is to sit around and break my heart over the way that politics work every day. Oh, it's exhausting. Anyway. I have loved getting to talk about this election, and I'm eager to see what the future holds for the state of Florida. So, what the future holds for this show? Well, we've got some really exciting episodes coming up in November, some environmental episodes, a sports episode. Y'all know I love when I get to talk about my sports. So, I'm excited for the next couple of weeks, and I'm excited for the Thanksgiving holiday. If you celebrate, I'm looking forward to that as well. Maybe I'll do some baking. Maybe I'll post some baking on the Instagram now is this is the best time to get involved in WFM pod on Instagram. <laughs> anyway, we'll be back next week. I will see you next Monday for that episode. I'm so looking forward to it until then. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Drink more water. And most importantly, vote. Have a good week. Have a relaxing election day. Cut yourself some slack. It's going to be stressful, but I will see you next Monday. Have a good week.